You know, one of my prayers at the beginning of every service is that God will speak to every single person present through something, a word, a phrase, a song, a prayer, or some word from the message. And I love how he is faithful uh, to do that. Well, this morning, as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 8, we are coming to the end of this chapter. And uh, it's been quite a chapter, quite a journey. Luke began, and you know that chapter divisions were not uh, in the original uh, scriptures, but they've been added for us to more easily find places. And yet they make sense a good bit of the time. And, and Luke, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, gives us a transitional statement and, and tells us that Jesus began at this point in time to, to perform ministry and miracles and teaching throughout the region up and down uh, what is in essence the western shore of the Galilee and the Galilean region as he made his way toward Jerusalem. But then after giving us the parable of the sower as an illustration of some of the things that Jesus was teaching and saying, he uh, kind of gives us a snapshot of what we almost might call a day in the life of Christ. Because the events that uh, begin uh, as Jesus gets in the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee occur in a very short period of time. And if they're not a literal 24 hours, they're certainly very close. Uh, Jesus goes across the Galilean Sea does something on the other side, comes back, does two more things, and that's kind of like a picture of the ministry that Jesus was having on a regular basis. John tells us in his gospel toward the end, he said, uh, this is the account that I have given to you of all the things that Jesus began to do and to say, and quite honestly, if I were to tell you everything, uh, the whole world couldn't contain the number of books that would fill that library. Uh, a bit of hyperbole there, but it, it, it indicates to us that of all the things that we have recorded in the Gospels, Jesus did vastly more than uh, those things alone. So if you'd like to uh, follow with me, beginning in verse 40 of Luke 8, I'm going to read the last section of this chapter, and we'll then talk about it together. Uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and 
fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he said to him, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and James and John and the girl's father and mother. Now, they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called her, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. You know, as I um, began to read this story and think about the way Luke presents it, um, uh, by the way, when I use the word story, I'm certainly not in any way implying fiction, but uh, the, a, a record, an event of history that occurred. But Luke is a masterful storyteller, and he knows how to put things together in a way that just, you know, kind of capture uh, and pull you into the event. And as he begins to tell this story, he weaves together two people who are virtually on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, when you look at uh, the story and analyze it, there's, there's a man who is highly respected in the community. He is a leader of the synagogue, one of the officials, perhaps the president. Um, as a leading official, he probably also had good standing uh, economically within the community. Uh, for some reason, those things tend to go together. And, um, you know, he was the kind of person uh, whom everyone would have known and would have recognized and, and respected for his spiritual leadership and his wisdom and the guidance that he provided because the synagogue in a community was like the center of community life. It was, it was a place of wisdom, a place of learning, a place of connecting with God, uh, a, a place that brought them together as uh, extended family groups. And uh, this guy would have uh, been really significant to all of them. On the other hand, the woman in the story is almost on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that she was poor because she had spent every dime she had uh, available on trying to find a cure for her problem. And uh, another thing that stands out about her is that uh, the kind of difficulty that she had, particularly in the culture of the time, would have been uh, considered socially uh, reprehensive. They would have not wanted her to be very involved in society. In fact, Dr. Luke uh, uses wording that is quite similar to the Old Testament that leads us to understand that the kind of hemorrhage she suffered from 
was a chronic uterine bleeding where she had no relief and not having a lot of the conveniences and disposables that we have today um, and being considered unclean by the society, um, she would have been in a place of uh, kind of an outcast. She would not have been accepted by the community. She would have been um, sort of pushed off to the side. She would have been embarrassed and, and humiliated by her problem. And uh, when you recognize that for 12 years she had had a rather constant bleed, she would have been uh, weak and uh, iron deficient and had all kinds of problems uh, of that nature. And she had literally spent uh, every penny she had available to find some doctor that might be able to help her. And no one had any idea uh, what to do for her. So here are two amazing extremes. Uh, this very well-respected central figure in the community and this woman who is on the uh, outer elements living in poverty with a chronic illness that is both uh, socially humiliating and physically exhausting and draining. And both of them yet um, are coming uh, and waiting for Jesus with an expectation that he will meet them in some important way. Do you ever try when you read the Bible to uh, interject yourself into the into the story to to kind of see it uh, from a, a, an upfront perspective and say, you know, what's going on here? I've often wondered when we're told they were all waiting for him to return. Is this something that he normally did? Go away in a boat and come back? I mean, was this so common that they kind of said, well, he'll be back in a day or so, uh, we can just wait? Or did some of the boats return early and announce that he was on his way, uh, coming back to their area? You know, they didn't have texting. They didn't have CNN. They couldn't tune into the TV and see what Jesus was up to. And so it's like, how did they know that he was going to be coming back in a boat to that very area? Well, somehow they did, because the Bible tells us that there was a whole crowd of people that were at the shore of the Sea of Galilee waiting for his return. And among them, this uh, synagogue official by the name of Jairus had gone in hopes that um, he could get a hold of Jesus immediately and persuade him to come to his house. Uh, we're told uh, in the text that he had an only daughter. The implication, in fact, may be that he had no sons, that this was his only child, and she was a daughter. She was 12 years old. She was right at that uh, beautiful and remarkable transitional phase that uh, e even the Jews celebrated with uh, you know, with particular excitement that she was going from a little girl to becoming a young woman. And at this tender moment in her life, she has become ill to the point of death. Put yourself in dad's shoes. 
um, you know how your heart is wrapped up in your children. And you know how much they mean to you and how you love them. And I'm sure that he has spent hours by her bed, wiping her brow, um, praying over her, asking for some kind of help. And she's getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Um, This weekend we've had our our grandchildren uh, with us, and um, one of them is four. You know how kids that age can very quickly spike a temperature. Uh, He had gotten sick earlier in the week, and the doctor had no idea what might be wrong with him, couldn't find anything. But sure enough, last night, uh, as he was sitting in my lap and we were watching, I think, a Scooby-Doo movie together, um, you know, he spiked a temp, and immediately uh, he's almost at 103 and just hot as a pistol. and 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 I'm holding him, and I'm praying for him. And I'm asking God to touch him and to intervene and to, to do something uh, for his little body as I'm you know, doing everything I know to do. And this story came to mind. How this dad is invested in his daughter. And he hears that Jesus is coming. And he says to himself, if I can get down there in time to get him, I can get him to come here and he can make her well. I can't think of anything else that would have taken him away from her side in that crisis. And so he goes, and I I don't know, maybe he was counting on his status in the community to help him advance in the line or whatever, but he was hoping to snag Jesus the minute he got off the boat. And surely enough, that's exactly what happened as he's sitting there, Uh, Standing there waiting and waiting, Jesus finally appears, and as soon as he lands and comes to shore, uh, Jairus approaches him and he says, My daughter, my only daughter, is, is sick and she's about to die, and I need you to come to my house. And you notice in in Luke's narrative that he does not hesitate. Immediately He's on board with this man, and he begins to move toward the house. And the crowd, of course, they've been waiting for him, and now they're anxious to see, well, what's he going to do? So they all press around him. In fact, Peter gives us some insight that uh, there's, there's quite a crowd, and, and they're so close together, they're jostling into one another. You know, you've been to crowds like that, fairs, Navy Pier, whatever, when it's been so thick that uh, you, you can't walk without bumping into people. And in the middle of this jostling around, Jesus stops dead still and says, Who touched me? (laughs) And Peter, bless his heart, he's always the first one to voice everybody's thoughts, you know. He's thinking, Jesus, really? I mean, you're in the middle of a crowd, everybody's touched you. What, What are you asking this for? And Jesus says, now Peter, I know someone touched me with intent because I felt the power go out of me. I particularly relate to that. And those of you that have had roles in in spiritual ministry, I'm sure you can relate to that as well. I, I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity... Uh, to, to speak or to preach and to explain the scriptures or to teach it. 
but I can tell you that Sundays are a challenge. And uh, I only, uh, I'm only here like six hours on Sunday morning. I get here about six, and I leave around 11.30 or so, and by the time I get home, I've only worked a half a day. But I feel like I've worked two. There's, there's intensity when you're communicating spiritual truth and the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're also dealing with the powers of darkness that are opposing you. And I particularly related to the fact that Jesus perceived that power had gone out of him. Uh, when, I, when I have finished two services on a Sunday morning, I am totally drained. I, I tell you exactly what I do. I go home and I go to bed. <laughs> I take a nap. I sleep for a couple of hours. Um, Jesus was not immune to that. You find him on a number of occasions in the Gospels after a long and intensive time of ministry saying, we've got to get away from here. I've got to get away from the crowds. I need to refresh. I need to uh, get some rest. In fact, that's what prompted him to go across the Sea of Galilee to begin with, was he was so tired that he fell asleep in the back of a boat and didn't even wake up when a life-threatening storm took over. And so he was aware that someone had touched him with the intent of receiving healing, and he wanted to hear the story. This dear woman realizes that she has not escaped notice. And she comes trembling before him and falls at his feet. And she, you know, confesses it. She said, here's my story. And I had hoped that if I could just touch the hem of your garment, that I would be healed. And I perceived that when I did that, I was healed. I knew that my problem had ended. I knew that my body was whole. I knew that God had met me. And Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Uh, you have been healed. Can, can you imagine her sheer delight? Life has totally changed for this woman. Her whole expectation of her future is now completely different. Meanwhile, the delay has been costly. While he's having this conversation, one of the people from his house arrives and whispers to Jairus, tell the master, no need to come. I'm sorry, your daughter has died. And it's too late. There's nothing more to be done. And so Jairus goes to Jesus and says, You don't need to come. I appreciate your willingness, but my daughter has died. And Jesus says to him, Just keep believing. You came to me in faith. Just keep having faith. Your daughter is going to be okay. Well, that's kind of interesting. They continue on their way, and I don't know what was going through Jairus' mind. Maybe he was thinking, well, maybe he knows something I don't know. Maybe they got it wrong. Maybe she's not really dead. Maybe she just kind of quit breathing for, 
for a few breaths and, and they sent the guy too early. But when he gets to the house, the wailing and the mourning has already begun and everybody has entered into this grief mode and the mother's distraught and the whole, uh, the whole household is beginning to show the signs of grief. And Jesus goes in and he says, she is not dead, she's only sleeping. <sighs> These people start laughing at him. You know, isn't it amazing how you can go from grief to, to ridicule in just the blink of an eye? I mean, it's like, come on, you're nuts. I mean, you are completely crazy. I find it interesting to read uh, liberal commentators sometimes. By liberal, I mean they, they don't really believe the Bible, uh, but they're trying to explain this. And some of the things that they often have to say about these situations is, well, these were ignorant people living in in uh, kind of backwater times, and they didn't really understand death very well, and, and they couldn't tell the difference between a coma and dead, so, uh, you know, they often made mistakes. Come on. These were agrarian people. They were, they were shepherds. They, they, they were involved uh, with animals. They were involved with people. They lived life in the nitty-gritty. Uh, when someone died in their community, it, they didn't call the, the coroner and the funeral director to come take care of things. They took care of things. They, they were the only ones to, to bring the, the, the burial. And so they knew death when they saw it. And they start laughing at Jesus because they know that this girl has died. The other thing that this particular incident has caused some trouble for people in is Jesus says she is asleep. And you're not, are you? Boy, you are wide awake. <laughs> um, Jesus says she's asleep, and, and some people have wrongly interpreted that to mean what has come to be called soul sleep. That when you die, you kind of hang out in the grave in a, in a suspended animation sort of sleep until the resurrection. But the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That moment, right now, I am out of this body and I'm in His presence. In fact, Jesus said to Martha regarding Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that uh, believes in me will never die. Uh, do you believe this? And what he was saying was that for a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, that when we come to that moment of death, and this is a great encouragement, friends, when we come to that moment of death and our spirit leaves our body, we're done with this tent we don't cease for a heartbeat. Our mind is active, our awareness is active, our conscience is active, our consciousness. We go into the presence of God seeing and hearing and feeling and thinking and with a sense of selfhood and identity. We are ourselves. We just live in a body. We are not our body, we live in it. And when the moment of laying this body down comes, we are in His presence. Or, if we don't know Him, 
we are consciously aware of the fact that we are not in his presence because it's Hades until the judgment. And it's not a good thing. And so Jesus is saying, I know where she is. And as far as I'm concerned, she has not stopped to be. She is very much alive. He puts everybody out of the house except James and John and Peter and the parents. And he goes in the room and he says very simply, little girl, arise. Can you imagine what happened to that mom and dad when that little girl gets up off the bed and he says, feed her. She's hungry and she's ready to eat. Whoa, what an amazing, amazing moment. Can you put yourself in the scene? It's practically impossible to imagine, isn't it? That someone you know has died, has come back to life. As I look at this eighth chapter of Luke's Gospel, the things that stand out to me all along the way is how very much God loves people. He's with his disciples in a boat at sea and a storm comes up that to their experienced eyes is about to sink them. And Jesus wakes up and says, Peace, be still. And the storm is calmed. He goes to the other side, to the region of the Gentiles, and there's a demoniac, a demonized man, who is so severe that no one has been able to help him. He is completely out of control. And in barely the blink of an eye, Jesus totally delivers him. And he is completely free and puts on clothes for the first time in years and is in his right mind as he begins to talk to Jesus about this incredible deliverance. And then when he comes back, he meets this woman who has had a chronic illness for 12 years that Dr. Luke says no physician could help. But Jesus, with the touch of his garment, heals her immediately. And then... He shows up at Jairus' house only to find the patient has died. And with two words, Tabitha Kum, she stands up from her bed and takes food and is completely resurrected and restored. These events, can you see what Luke is trying to get us to understand? These events represent all the troubles we can have in life. The, the environmental, the circumstantial, the, the physical problems that lie beyond our control. They include not only storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters, but they include economic disasters and downturns and financial catastrophe and all of those kinds of things. And the demonized man indicates to us a person in the most severe 
bondage to sin that you can possibly imagine. The woman is the illness that no one can cure. And the doctors scratch their head and simply say, we have nothing to offer you. There's nothing more we can do for you. Meanwhile, you're left with a pile of bills that are going to drain all of your savings. And there's nothing that anybody can do. And then even in the face of death. And Luke tells us that in every situation, Jesus is able to meet the need. He is able. And the thing that is motivating him is his tremendous love for people. And so I ask us this morning, do you know that no matter what your need is today, Jesus is adequate? Do you know that He can meet you no matter what your crisis, that He is able? Do you know how much He loves you? Jesus himself says, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing. I do only those things he tells me to do. When we see how Jesus has cared for these people, what we see is the character of God. Do you know how much he loves you? The scripture says, behold, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you know how much he loves you? You know, sometimes, just a personal testimony, I guess it says something about my own self and my own self-image, but I have no trouble believing God can do anything. I really don't. Sometimes I have trouble believing that He's willing to do it for me. You know, I believe He can do anything. But will he do it for me? And the scripture says, I know the hairs on your head. I know when you sit down. I know when you stand up. I know your thoughts before you think them. How much attention do you think I give you? Yesterday I was driving home up Riverside Drive and I'm, I'm a real soft heart. <laughs> and the car in front of me hit a sparrow and I saw the bird fall off to the side of the road and valiantly try to get up one last time and didn't make it. And I immediately thought of Jesus' words. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father's knowledge. Are you not worth much more than a sparrow? In that moment... Even in what was a sad moment, God touched and reminded me that He is paying attention to every detail of my life. Do you know that this morning about you? Do you know that He cares? Do you know that He is already aware of your need? Are you willing to come to Him and very clearly state what it is you need Him to do. Are you in a crisis this morning?
do you have something that's occupying your thoughts, that has you worried, that's pulling you down? Do you have something going on? Do you know that he already knows that? And just like that woman that said, if I, if I could just get close enough to touch his garment, that he cares about your situation. And he is available to you. Your faith has made you well. He that comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you know that this morning? Jesus Christ is ready to meet you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for your word to us. I thank you that your word here in the life of Christ reveals your heart and your character and that you have loved us with an everlasting love. I thank you, Father, that you already know what our needs are and you invite, them, invite us to bring them to you because you are able to meet us and to care for us. I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to believe. We're like that man in the Gospels that when you said, do you believe? He said, Lord, I do, but help my unbelief. I, I'm right on the verge. I, I think so, but I need help. Lord, I pray this morning that Every person here would know that you would help our unbelief, that we would know that you love us and that you care for us. And I pray that you would give us faith today to put in your hands our problems, whatever they are. There's no kind of issue that is beyond your power. There are no circumstances that defeat you. Not even in the face of death are you humiliated. For you are conqueror, king of kings, and lord of lords. And you are our savior. And we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. Help our unbelief. Amen.